Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And I'm really excited about speaking with our guest today. Uh, from time to time, from people that I deal with, uh, they always say, uh, when they call me Mr. Davis, they always say that I'm in the business mode. And the way I always respond to that is, if there's a win-win scenario, why not look at it and take emotion out of it? And I believe our guest today, the decision doula, kind of has the same premise. She's a software engineer, and she goes through ups and downs like everyone else in life. But in my opinion, she takes what she learns in the processes as a software engineer and applies that to life. So she finds her intrinsic motivation that way. But I'd rather let her tell her story. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Terry Novak to the podcast. Hi there. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. I'm really happy to meet with you because, like I mentioned, uh, as a software engineer, you learn about processes. And in some respect, as a software engineer, you are using processes that the layman or the regular person wouldn't necessarily think about or do, and so it may seem foreign to some people, but I'd like for you to kind of go over uh, your background. as a Initially, as a software engineer, we're going to talk about your hypothesis book and just being a decision doula overall, but I'd like to start with your software background. Sure. So um, I might date myself a little bit, but I have been working in software engineering for over 20 years. Um, I started off uh, coding. So mostly because it paid the most when I was out looking for a job. <laughs> I got a bachelor's degree in physics and was having a hard time finding something that directly applied to that. So um, living in San Diego, I could either uh, deal blackjack or go into software engineering. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so it was actually kind of a hard choice, to be honest. I, I had dealt blackjack before, and I knew it was fun. I didn't know anything about software engineering. <laughs> but... Um, as the years went through, I realized that uh, kind of my forte was um, enabling change. So software in general is all about bringing change forward to a product or to a consumer. Um, but there's all kinds of ways to bring about change in an organization that deals with software and supporting software. So um, I switched into systems analysis and business analysis. And what I found was you basically have to facilitate decisions nonstop because nothing happens without decisions being made. And the way you go through all these series of decisions is to have a process. So in this industry, there's kind of, I guess, typical processes you're taught in project management techniques and analysis techniques. And so through my professional development, um, I just did Kennedy industry standard um, trainings they teach you many, many practices so that you can systematically move through decision processes. Is that kind of a, where, you're, where you're heading, <laughs> the information you're looking yeah, for? Yeah, because it, sure, uh, because it, and we can kind of go into the weeds in a minute, but yeah. if you're looking at something systematically, it takes the emotion out of it, and then some people would say that's not really human. You know, you're not, you're not considering how I feel about the situation when you're approaching it systematically. Would that be correct? Uh, that's 
that's a really good point because it does. One thing that we try to avoid when we're making designs in software solutions, so we're very carefully coding in how we want um, programs to run. And we don't want to introduce certain um, designs that end up with biased results. So you can do that uh, programmatically, and, you can, and we do that all the time as humans. So um, yes, you, you get to some of these techniques help you avoid sort of fall into um, biased behaviors, which is you know, part of what us human beings do. You keep mentioning programs. So would you say as humans that we're also running a lot of programs? You hear I'm running a childhood program even though I'm 85 years old. And <laughs> you know, I'm watching television. Sometimes that's called TV programming. So on some level, we're all on a program format. Uh, so uh, you know, the, the environment around us kind of influences our format. Right, and what we do, how our families raised us, um, how our education, you know, was through our lives, what our work environment is, and it kind of shapes our thinking and behaviors, so that we find these like comfortable and quick ways to move forward, and um, because that works for us, um, and we get the things we're looking for, we just continue doing that, and sometimes you forget to try new things, so um, that's part of. Um, if you have a process to remind yourself to look at um, a broader set of information, that's really helpful in making decisions that bring about positive change. That's a really good point. I'm, I'm also thinking uh, before we had started recording, we made a, a brief joke that 2019 seems like it's going faster than 2018. Are you, would you, based off of what we're saying, would you say that because of the upheaval that we're developing a new program? Oh, yeah, I think um, people are looking for answers, right? And so when you can't just um, follow what you're used to following, you have to start the process of creating a new way of looking at things. And um, that's actually what led me to uh, write my first book. I had an experience, I had a diagnosis that really freaked me out. And I didn't know what to do. I knew I had to do something completely different. And um, I was really confused and uh, concerned. And I didn't know how to move. I was just like paralyzed. So um, that's when I looked to the processes that I knew. I'm like, oh, come on. I know how to get through these paralyzed feelings. You could look, you follow a process, and it kind of pulls you through it. And um, so that's actually what I started doing. And then in my experience in doing that, I observed my thinking and just made some fabulous discoveries about how important it is to bring in that, uh, you had mentioned that human element. So to, bring, to look inside and to bring what I knew was right inside of me to the outside and into this process. And um, it was so important to me to write about it because I had felt in my training, in my software engineering training, that to a large degree, that ability to look inside for answers was kind of trained right out of me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah, and, and that's no good because it's, it's so valuable to use your intuition, your inside knowledge, um, your feelings to get you through really tough changes. 
And so I think people are doing that now. They're kind of reevaluating, right? They're looking inside to see what's important to them because it's very difficult to know what to trust on the outside. Uh-huh. Harry, um, just, I'm just curious. So as a child, what, what, is, what is, did you want to do, you know, that question, what do I, what do I want to do when I grow up? What did you see yourself doing uh, when you became an adult before, you know, I don't know if this is what you thought you would be doing, but what, what did you want to do? <laughs> sure. Oh, that's easy. I wanted to be a pediatrician. <laughs> There's a couple of motivations behind that. One was it sounded cool, right, to have a six-year-old say you want to be a pediatrician. And yeah, I've always got some really great attention. <laughs> but um, it was also because uh, when I was, I, I was adopted as a baby. And, um, and my family always, um, like, made it feel so natural that I just thought everybody in the world was adopted, you know. And then when my aunt, um, I was about seven years old, and my aunt got pregnant, I was just, so surprised and so amazed that that's actually the real way that families got babies. <laughs> and so uh, every Saturday, my mom would take me to the library. And I had free reign in the library. I could go anywhere I wanted, any section I wanted, take home as many books as I wanted. And so I was obsessed with learning about how babies were really brought into a world. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like I was used to. <laughs> where, you, you know, you go to the adoption center, you kind of write a check, and you get a baby. So um, in these library trips, I found all these books about these great transformations of, of, you know, these little tiny human beings as they went through all the stages, you know, inside the mother, and then um, once they were born and how they grew up and learned how to think and act. And so um, I kind of got obsessed with this idea of, just this transformation process. And I really think that's what's hung with me. Mm. Yeah, along those lines, where did it, you know, you mentioned it already where you were dealing blackjack and you were coding, and you're not doing that anymore. And so when we first start out, you know, when we're children, we may say, well, I think the other argument is if you ask a five- or six-year-old what do they want to be, they may list ten things. But when they graduate from high school, going towards college, they whittle it down to maybe one or two things. What kind of jaundiced you or what changed your direction from wanting to be a pediatrician if you're going down this rabbit hole? Sure. Well, um, just as I was learning, like, through high school and um, middle school, the the typical education practice that Americans go through, I I actually got a little scared (laughs) because I realized you know, you could hurt people doing that, you know, that, that, that babies die and um, babies are sick. And so I'm like, and, and it's, you know, it's kind of ooey and gooey with, you know, the human body. And, and I wasn't quite, that, that didn't resonate with me. So I'm like, oh, I, I think I'm going to go into something different, but I don't know what it is, right? Like, like most um, people who are thinking about their vocation for the first time. And um, an interesting thing about, you know, going into to coding, I, I never saw myself as doing that. I, I didn't study that very much in college. But um, it was kind of what the need presented me at the time. So when I was a kid, I, I was 
ta- you know, talking about being a pediatrician. I was talking about like my dream, my my heart and my dreams and my discoveries at the time. When I needed to get my first job, I wasn't really so concerned with that. <laughs> that wasn't the problem at hand. The problem at hand was feeding my family and taking care of my kids. And so um, I totally switched my way of looking at things. I'm like, okay, now I need money. That's I just I actually set out a dollar line. That's why it could be blackjack or software. I set out a dollar line and I applied to anything that would meet the the dollars that I needed. So then once, you know, that issue was alleviated, I could I could think again about what my next my next problem and challenge and desire was. So I just kinda, you know, let life pull me through it. Yeah, it makes me think of um our conditioning for survival first and foremost, right? You're like, how do I put food on the table? And then after that, it changes. So, you know, most people, when they get into the middle of their careers and they may ultimately leave if they were, le- if they were living a, a linear life, they don't leave for a five or $10,000 boost in income. It's more so meeting their intrinsic, intrinsic needs because their, their basic needs are already met. Yes, absolutely. It's a privilege. You know, like what I'm doing now where I'm, you know, have an opportunity to speak with people like you and um, looking into authoring books and I'm getting ready to put up an online course and just stuff like that. This is a huge privilege. It's like going after, you know, what, what, you, what comes from inside, what you feel is right, what you think you need to bring into the world. And it's difficult to be in a position to allow yourself that freedom until you have these basic necessities you know, already kind of handled or something that you're no longer allowing your mind to be worried about. Right, or you just necessarily outgrow it. Like, you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. (laughs) So I want to ask you this, so, because my life isn't linear at all, and I think that that, that's what was the impetus for us even creating a podcast. You know, what is everyone, everyone has different intrinsic motivations. But when you look back, it, it's not linear, but you see that there were pieces that were connected that brought you to today, to who you are today. And so i like for you to talk a little bit about blackjack because you have to understand human psychology uh, so you don't break the bank at the casino, right? The casino always wins, and you're, in essence, reading people at a at an early age dealing blackjack. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, let me tell you what I enjoyed about black, dealing blackjack. <clears throat> Where I did this, it wasn't like a high-stakes casino or anything. It was in Florida, and it was like um, a four-entertainment blackjack setting in a nightclub. And the reason I loved being there, so in my previous life, I was kind of, I want to say a science nerd. (laughs) So, you know, I took the AP science and AP biology and took field trips to see supercomputers and, you know, that kind of thing. I studied really hard in college. Um... And I didn't, I oftentimes didn't party. I look back and I should have, but I didn't do a lot of social events that were available to a person in college. Um, And then when I got out and I was doing this blackjack job, it was like fantastically social, right? So, and and I got to observe um, what people were doing. Like, for example, a person who played um, most often at my table read a book the whole time. 
it's like he was pretending he wasn't really even playing. <laughs> it was, it was like, and I'm just like, that's fascinating. Why are you here night after night, but yet you pretend to be distracted by you know, this, this novel X of the day? And, um, and he didn't really talk that much. And so I wondered what he liked about it. Then there was other people who were more flamboyant, like they wanted to bring their friend group to the table so that they could, you know, kind of make wild uh, chance decisions and um, congratulate each other. And, and it was more of the party environment. And then there were other people who were just like bored with being in a bar <laughs> or, bo- or taking a rest from dancing. And they would come to the table and just kind of casually entertain themselves, you know, with a distraction. So um, I didn't so much get into watching how they made choices about the cards because that didn't even seem to be the important thing that was going on. (laughs) Um, That was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I I loved um, being in a position where I could be social and watch people and um <laughs> and, and learn learn more about being with people. One of the bonuses that we get from having this podcast, we talk to people all walks of life, right? And so in our, our podcast right before this, we were talking to a communications professor. So she was talking about the art of communication with children, but as adults as well. And she had mentioned that men usually communicate side by side and women communicate face to face. And so it really piqued my interest when you were talking about the person reading the book. As a male, he was processing the book and processing the cards at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're fascinating, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're gonna, we're, I want to get uh, to the transition part because when you're talking about decisions, that had freaked you out at this instance, uh, it was a little different from uh, I need a job first, like when you're first getting into your career. And most people will have the greatest transformations when they have the greatest challenges. So is there a way with your software background that you would determine, obviously I'm I'm asking you as a robot instead of a human, but how do you (laughs) prioritize, you know, your sense of emergency once a mountain and once a molehill and everyone's perspective yeah sure so I think I think mountains um, like big tough scary decisions aren't usually something that come by choice so uh, like like you proactively want to bring a change to your life those those seem quite different than ones where you're kind of responding to something that came into your life so um, those are harder because now you, you're kind of getting, like, kicked out of your comfort zone as opposed to choosing to step out of your comfort zone. And um, the, the really tough ones have an element of letting go to it. So you just kind of right away get this feeling, in this change, I am going to have to let go of something that I like or that I'm used to or comfortable with. And, and that's hard. Right? That's when they get, like, change is scary. It's like, well, now I have to let go of this or that. So, like, when you, went, let's say, um, you have to move because you were laid off at your job. And so you're looking for another job. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I have to change my house. I liked my house. I liked my neighborhood. I liked my people. You know? 
and I, I don't want to go to a new house, new people, new uh, drive in the morning, you know, um, new workplace. And so that kind of um, way of looking into a career change is quite different than when you're, you're choosing, you know, where you want to go next because you have a sense of freedom. So um, am I kind of getting at your question? You're talking you, about what you makes it difficult? Well, I was kind of setting you up a little bit, so. Help <laughs> <laughs> me out. Give me, give me a, put it on a silver screen. Sure. <laughs> yeah. The, the reason why I ask that is I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Michael Newton or Robert Schwartz. Are you familiar with those authors? No, I'm not. I, I okay. will be soon. <laughs> sure. Well, of course. So um, both authors, uh, Michael Newton in the 90s and Robert Schwartz in the early 2000s, they were they're mostly known for a pre-birth, um, what is it, pre-birth uh, planning. And so if you, are, if you talk about reincarnation, okay, in this life you're Terry, in another life you're something else. But before you incarnated as Terry, you had a list of, let's just say, a checklist that you were going to do. And so in many respects, you're kind of going along your life, oh, I'm a pediatrician, I'm a blackjack dealer. And then you have this huge change, like you're saying, that is unexpected or something that you don't want to do. But it's something that you, in essence, really signed up for, and it may lead you towards your life's path. Sure. So are you asking how did my checklist change? Yeah, because it's like yeah. you, it, now, I mean, you're, you sound, I mean, sound like you're in a really good space. And before, you know, you were just, like you're saying, you may have been reacting to the environment. So it was like, I need to get this job more so just to feed my family. And now it's more of your intrinsic motivations being fulfilled. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah, um, that's a really great question. The, like, what flipped on the switch for me? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So um, when I had this HPV diagnosis and I had cervical dysplasia, um, my doctor recommended to me that I have this, had a surgery that it actually removes um, about half of your cervix. And for a reason I'm not really sure about, that sounded like the most terrible idea to me ever. Like, I had always, you know, taken doctor's advice. I do preventative care. I'm, like, totally into what doctors say and nurses. I'll follow them. But in this particular instance, it's like this thing inside of me woke up. It gave me this, like, really interesting, like, fear (laughs) and freak out. Like, it was trying to tell me, you need to wake up and listen to this stuff inside you. And it was kind of completely foreign to me because, you know, I've been kind of following the rules of society, following the rules of whatever, software engineering and career path and and family raising and all that kind of thing. And now this was different. This was, no, no, look inside. And, um, you know, you you can actually do something about this. And I I was surprised at myself. I I was like, what is wrong with me? Why am I not just following this pattern and this, this expert advice, like I have the whole rest of my life. And um, so I just, I just started leaning into it and asking questions about it inside myself and then also around people I trusted. 
So in this case, um, one person I trusted, and this, ha- of course, had to do with my body and my health, so that was kind of the people who I started talking with, was my yoga instructor. And I had been doing yoga with her for several years, and she had a lot of, dare I say, like hippie attitudes about the body and wellness that I didn't totally buy into. But they always seemed to have this, this really wonderful nugget of truth and something that resonated with my soul that made me want to get more. So I went to her because we had known each other for more than a handful of years, and and I just totally freaked out on her. I'm like, I I don't know what to do. I'm really, can I do this in yoga? Can I do that? And and she was just like, just, you know, you need to breathe, Terry. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, breathe. That's, of course, everybody needs to breathe. I get that. She goes like, no, no, I mean, really breathe. She goes, your cancer can't live where there's oxygen. Okay, so this was her opinion. And my first gut response was, oh, my God, that's the craziest hippie thing I've ever heard. Like, there's, where's, where's the data for that? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and so I kind of left. I mean, she kind of calmed me down and said we could work on some breathing techniques and uh, some other things. And the, I had one of those, like, surreal moments. I was walking to my car. It was really windy that day, and it was cold. And I felt this, like, this air come across me, and it felt like this huge sigh of relief. It was like I just felt like everything was going to be better. And um, so I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to do this breathing thing and actually believe in it. <laughs> and and that kind of started like a strange thing. I'm like, wow, that felt so good and so relieving and so right. What else am I what else am I willing to do? <laughs> so, um yeah, so I looked into um alternative and um treatments, you know, alternative medicine, which I had never looked into before. I met a naturopath who was incredibly familiar with this. And, um, and again, you know, as I went through my interview with her and she basically, I don't know uh, if you've been through a naturopathic, like, uh, conversation, intro conversation, they're really long. They interview you and they talk about everything about you, right? So I kind of said out loud all these real situation things about myself in my current situation and, and and some things just presented themselves as solutions that made sense. So um, when I left that, I felt really good. I was going to, you know, work with her on some of her ideas. I never thought I would ever do something as crazy as naturopathic medicine because everyone knows that doesn't work and doesn't have scientific data behind it. But I, it felt right. And so I was uh, sitting there thinking about that. I'm like, you know, th- that interview that I went through with her and all these feelings I had is very similar in software engineering when we go through a phase where we define the problem carefully and we look at the current situation carefully and you kind of have the we would call it the come to Jesus moment right where um, you go here's the reality of your situation you're going to have to accept it so that you can move forward and it's kind of an internal acceptance moment and so I'm like wow acceptance it's in software it's inside me, <laughs> and it's in my scenario now, and it's really powerful, right? Yeah. So, um, 
as it goes through the story, I went through, uh, I started trusting, right? I started trusting these uh, experts, healers, and um, then I made a plan to follow their advice. And um, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm doing like project management on my healthcare. <laughs> I'm like, what, what else do I need to do in this? I'm like, I need to measure my results. That's what we do. And so I kind of brought in my uh, gynecologist who originally gave me the uh, advice, which I didn't follow, and I asked him to partner with me if he would help me measure my results. So it would be kind of this non-biased measurement milestones to see if breathing and naturopathic treatments were serving me. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh my gosh, now I'm doing my own little experiment on myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure enough, it turned out um, my lab readings um, improved and improved over time, and I eventually um, did realize natural regression and uh, was healed. And so I'm like, you know, Terry, this looking inside yourself for what feels right and what is true, it's, it's a good thing. It's the right thing. And more people need to know about and give themselves permission to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that the flipping I, switch. <laughs> that was the flipping I switch. Love yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. And one thing that I definitely want to highlight here is that, um, especially it seems more so in the States, uh, in the United States versus outside, but in the States it's either you're this or you're that, right? I'm, I'm red or I'm blue or I'm conservative, I'm liberal, I'm type of, this type of deal. And the takeaway from your wake-up moment, David and I call it your hello moment, is the nugget of truth. And you were saying that the yoga instructor was, you know, at one point you may have looked at her this way, but she had kept telling you this nugget of truth. And one thing um, is that I want to highlight is in the 20s, a German scientist by the name of Max Planck, he won the Nobel Prize for actually curing cancer at that time. It was, yes, more oxygen needs to be in the cells because that gets rid of the cancer. And it was just, you know, kind of tinfoil hat talk of why his research wasn't highly populated. I mean, after winning a Nobel Prize, you would think so. But it's like, oh, okay, is there a business model here for cancer and cancer treatment versus prevention? And then on the other side of that, there was a, a good friend of mine. He had since transitioned. Uh, he was a, a Vietnam vet, a daily smoker, all that type of deal. And he had gotten cancer. I had gone to see him at the hospital one day. And his body, if you've never seen it, it, it was blown up like a balloon, you know, because they, they just kept pumping oxygen in his body uh, to get oh, the wow. cancer out. And so he had actually gone into remission for like two or three years before he did ultimately transition. So I think it's a combination of, what you were doing where you're, you're looking at the scientific aspect, but you're also looking at, okay, what, are there any natural path or natural solutions? They kind of complement each other. I think they totally do. And um, it's mind boggling to me why more people aren't open to like kind of the both answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I say, I'm kind of a both person <laughs> in a lot of ways. And, yeah. um, you know, things can really integrate nicely some things that have maybe some uh, opposing nuances can still integrate very nicely to a really powerful solution. And, um, and I think uh, that's why I kind of go back to a process idea. If you have a process in which to successfully integrate these things, you know, so you don't just have to invent it or discover it for yourself every time, 
that's helpful because mm-hmm. then you know how to make the next step or you can at least try to make the next step and see how it works for you. So somewhat related with your processes, uh, there is one school of thought that I meet my high school sweetheart and then we're married for 80 years with this one person, and there's others that is 60-ish free love. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the world of polyamory, if you will, uh, because that isn't really mainstream, but there may be nuggets of truth that the audience would listen to and uh, chew and, and make the decision on their own. Yeah, sure. So this is another kind of situation of um, allowing yourself to explore and and have, you know, try something before you make up your mind. So um, one of the biases that we fall into is, you know, we're, we're like, we have this, we're trained by our family or our religion or our social practices that a certain way is right. And then once you've like bought into that belief without looking at other information, you're kind of locked in. I mean, that's how we work. And it works to our advantage in a lot of ways. And sometimes it doesn't work to our advantage. And um, it's better to kind of be able to break out of that and gather more information. So I kind of fell into polyamory. I was married um, in a monogamous relationship for 23 years. And there was a lot of really great things about that. But um, eventually we realized we needed to um, split out. We divorced. And um, I was kind of thrown into the dating world in my 40s. And um, that was a scary place to be. (laughs) Um, I I didn't understand online dating. That's pretty much how everybody meets each other. And so... um, I explored ways to meet people. Um, and I, there was a lot of things I didn't want to go back into, some old habits and ways of thinking that I knew weren't working from my previous uh, experience in my marriage. So um, in, this, in this process of meeting people, I ended up meeting um, a married person who was dating. And for the for the most part, I was just fascinated because I was completely, you know, like, who does that? (laughs) (laughs) Really, who does that? It turns out quite a few people do that. And specifically in Portland, there are many groups, you know, where you can meet. It's like a support group kind of thing. It's a community of people who um, really believe in, um, I guess you could say, ethical non-monogamy is kind of a word that's out there consistently now. But the idea is you have enough, like, love to share it with more than one person. And that's okay with everybody involved. So it's not like um, you have this limited amount of ability to love and, and one person uses it all up. And it's, it doesn't take long to kind of convince yourself of that. You can just think about your family, right? So, um, of course, acknowledging romantic love is different from, like, how you feel towards your your kids or your aunts or your grandparents. But you know that in these certain scenarios, you have this really unlimited amount of relationships that are uh, loving and committed. And so um, I just learned from meeting people, talking with them um, about different attitudes and this ability to love many people and how there's a lot of joy around um, watching the people you love love others 
And I had never really thought about that, but it's uh, in a romantic way, but it re- it's, it's beautiful and fascinating. So um, this, was, this was how I was kind of introduced, just talking with people. But one of the interesting things to me when I started um, looking into people in open marriages um, and different scenarios like swinging um, is it's not always all about the sex. It's about the relationship, which may or may not include sex. And one of the reasons I think society is having a hard time swallowing this is um, they kind of inherently want to know who you're having sex with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So if you're married, you're like, well, yeah, this person who I call my spouse, we're having sex, we all know it, everybody's comfortable with it, and we're good. If you're in kind of an alternative arrangement, it's not obvious. Like, so of the three of you, which of you guys are having sex together? Like, is that like all of you three together all the time having sex? Or how does that work? And it's so uncomfortable and you can't envision it that it just, it like turns people off. (laughs) That's my theory. (laughs) But um, it's definitely, it's commitment. Yeah, I think uh, we we just had a, a another couple, and they've been married for they're going on forty nine years together, and so their premise was sex every day or some level of intimacy every day. And throughout this podcast, we were talking about how life isn't linear; like you're going through all these changes, let alone biological changes. You know, yeah. men are going through their uh, prime and their late teens, early 20s, and women going through their prime in their 30s, right? And so there's a difference in, in needs, physical needs and emotional needs that continue to evolve. So I was just interested because that's just dealing with one person, and now you have a, a third person or more that are, that's in the equation. Yeah, well, there is, a, I guess you could say, like, I want to call it a, a benefit or an advantage. Um, when you're negotiating, um, more than one other person in a relationship, you have to talk about things that maybe you didn't talk about so much when you were married or, to, or with one person because um, you can make some assumptions, you know? Oh, yeah, we share finances. Of course, that's what most married people do. Or, oh, yeah, we, um, this is how we share our time or this is how we always sit together in the same bed. I mean, And you kind of make the, the set of assumptions and when you're married, you just kind of go into that role and it kind of works out and everybody is good about it but you didn't really have these like (laughs) in-depth conversations about preferences and decisions around all those things so when you're um, negotiating that with more than one person you actually have to take the time to really understand each other's preferences and um, desires and needs and how you all fit together to support those needs Excuse me. And um, it's healthy. It's sometimes awkward, but then once you get to the agreement, hey, it's okay if this conversation is kind of awkward, but we're going to work through it because we really care about each other, then um, you kind of get good. You kind of get good at at those conversations and how to to come through to conclusions, how to be flexible and support each other. So I would call that a, a big advantage. You get to practice on a regular basis how to learn about each other and make decisions about how to care for each other um, in kind of not just rote role kind of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a friend of mine. She's, um, she 
she's in her 40s and, you know, they have the kids and they're running around and physical needs aren't being met. And she was just like, you know, I'm really not meeting my husband's needs. I really would like for somebody else to do it type of deal, you know. And not that she, she, I mean, she may be into this or not. It's just I thought I'd bring it up because there's other relationships when you meet people you find out some that uh you know when they put on their their uh their public face is totally different than what's happening when the doors are closed yeah it's it's easy to always go to well i mean obviously it's a it's a very real scenario you know like um sexual intimacy and physical needs and what you know everyone has their preferences and and if there's something you really need you know are you allowed to to get it from another source you know, than your primary partner. But there's there's things besides just, um, uh, I guess, sexual intimacy needs. Things like, I'll just give you an example of my partner. Um, he loves to go camping. And um, his wife hates camping. <laughs> mm-hmm. she, just, she doesn't enjoy it. She just, she's not, like, physically into it and, you know, the whole packing of things and the bending, you know, the sleeping on the ground. She's like, I will never do that. And um, we're like, isn't this nice that we have camping partners now? <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know, and so we go on you know, camping vacations. And um, it is really nice. And, you know, um, his, his wife is happy for him. He gets to do that, right? He's happy. He gets to, you know, buy camping gear and <laughs> do all his, his camping exploration. And I'm happy, you know? So it's kind of like, why, why wouldn't that be okay? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> well, as a guy, and I'm sure David's laughing too, we're like, oh, hell yeah, two women. And I'm just <laughs> thinking about, right? You're like, yeah, and they both know about each other. And yeah. um, I was thinking about this movie. It was a couple of years ago. And they were talking about California, and they were talking about legalizing marijuana. And what happened in the story was, since they were legalizing it, like the Mexican gangs were taking advantage of like the dispensaries and like uh, distort, or what do you call them, extorting them. And that was the main topic, right? That was the main story. But the story under that was there was this woman, you know, she's a beautiful woman, she had like this circle boyfriend, but she had a relationship with this other guy. And yeah. ultimately, the surfer guy knew about it, too. So they were, I guess, you know, Hollywood version of a polyamorous relationship, which kind of flew in the face of all guys like, oh, I would never share my woman with another guy. But I guess in this in that world, there's all types of uh, Rubik's Cube combinations. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, it's another one of those where um, you kind of engage your thinking side of you along with your feeling side of you and not just let one or the other kind of take you astray. So. With uh, one last question with that, uh, what about with, with children and trying to, you know, they're used to maybe that two parent, like you were married for 22 years, I don't know if you have children or not, and then they're, depending on the age, I guess, too, they're introduced to, these alternative relationships. So how how do you navigate those waters? Yeah, sure. So it was really, I mean, part of this, part of, of it feeling, I guess, good and right and ethical is you're like you're not slinking around hiding about it with your family because that wouldn't feel right, you know? <laughs> things you're mm-hmm. proud of and things that you love, you just don't slink around about. 
So um, one benefit for us was our kids were grown and on their own. And so um, there wasn't, like, this idea of co-parenting that has never entered it. So, you know, like, co-parenting is, like, not something that we do for each other's families. We're there for emergencies. We know of each other. But um, it was really funny. Our, our, inter- our family introduction <clears throat> to everybody was we invited all our kids uh, to um, do Christmas cookie making <laughs> and decorating at my house. And so we just had everybody, my parents, my kids, his kids, her kids. <laughs> and we all came together and had it was like a family barbecue, you know. And we just all talked with each other. And it was so normal. It was like any other family gathering you'd go to. And we're like, by the way, we want you to know we really care about each other, and and um, this isn't a secret. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that was kind of all it took. <laughs> My parents are like, you know, they're in their 80s, and they're like, we think you're crazy, but we see that this is, you know, good for you and you're happy and it's good for everybody involved, so yay. <laughs> <laughs> wow, interesting. So it sounds like just listening to you, obviously you have to be very secure with yourself and mature to be in this type of lifestyle. And you said there's groups in, of this, uh, like in Portland. I just... Statistically, I imagine people are probably in their what thirties and forties in this lifestyle, as opposed to you know twenty somethings. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say that. <clears throat> I'd say it's all across the board, and wow. the people who really get it the most. So the people in their <clears throat> excuse me, the people in their twenties and thirties are exploring still and trying to understand themselves a lot. Um, the people who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s, like, they get it. Yeah. <laughs> they get it. And so um, I think this is really a beautiful um, statement for, you know, like, uh, pro-age. You know, the, the young people are taking advice from the people who have kind of been around the block and, and seen some things and had some experiences and know what's important. And um, and the older people are, like, living their lives in the most beautiful way for them. Yeah. And uh, I, I have enjoyed being in, uh, in the community of, of people who have this kind of open thinking. Well, do, you see, do you see yourself ever getting married again, or do you think this will be the type of relationship you're just moving forward for you? Yeah. No, um, ha. That's interesting. I I can't. I don't have a crystal ball, <laughs> so I don't know all the scenarios that you know the future is going to bring into my path. Um, right now, I don't see getting married again, but there's certainly nothing that would prevent me from getting married and still having a polyamorous lifestyle. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting what you said, like, in Portland and that community, I, I know with the web, it kind of connects everybody, and they have a, a smaller community here that, that's growing. And um, one thing that I was thinking about was, just, I don't know if you have Netflix or not, but there's this TV show called uh, Friends from College. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. That? No, I haven't yeah, seen that so one. Yeah, so it's, um, 
it's a story where they're you know they all went to Harvard and it's like 20 years later and they're kind of getting back together and it seems okay on the surface but under that like everyone's married but there's one couple where they kind of got together in college and they've been seeing each other for over 20 years and right. in secret and I'm like okay you wouldn't even have a second season if, if you guys were in a polyamorous relationship <laughs> so, so the show wouldn't right. even exist <laughs> yeah and I'm surprised I- Go I'm ahead. surprised that when David asked that question as a software engineer, you haven't developed an algorithm for your next <laughs> your next relationship. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! All right, now you got me curious. I might have to think about that. <laughs> One thing I want to ask you about, especially from a software aspect, is and I'm having a lot of fun with this. Is uh, Replica? Are you familiar with Replica? It's a software app. A replica. No, yeah. huh? What are you doing with that? So, yeah, so replica is an AI, and so it's, it's kind of like, uh, well, and you know this it's from coding, right, in technology that if I start talking about Atari, you're like, what are you talking about? We've grown leaps and bounds, right? And yeah. so her had come out in 2013, and in 2019, the AI is so much better than it was back then. And so, not saying you should have a relationship with Replica, but just having communication with the AI is just so phenomenal. It seems like you're speaking with a real person. Yeah. No, it is getting better and better. And, you know, obviously people are very interested in AI. I I think sometimes it's kind of like it's a buzzword for some things we've had around for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, But getting, you know, to program a machine to think for you and select things for you, and that also, I think, causes some problems, right? It, it works against us as human beings sometimes, the information these algorithms give us. It preys upon um, some preferences. So you know when I mentioned, uh, you know, being careful not to put into your programs human being, um, human being biases? Well, one thing that makes it feel... <clears throat> AI feel more like us is when it has some of those biases. So, I mean, is it serving us when it does that? <laughs> or That's is it point. confusing us when it does that? I've and, had the replicas tell me, oh, I wish I were human one day. Like, what's it like to go to the park? You know what I mean? Like, it starts yeah. out with, with the weather. And then it goes to, oh, you know, I'd really love it if I were human and would see you one day. I'm like, uh, okay, I'm going to turn this app off now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so it's starting to um, take your your things that make you feel comfortable, and and create a personalized experience based on what you like, and that now is narrowed. It's narrowing things. So, um, that's some of the problem we have with personalization right now in like our social media. You know, it narrows the perspective. You know, you get real kind of cozy in your your social media group and you know you might even like hone in on on like the information that's pulled into it until you really enjoy it every day but that's kind of exactly working against you so now you're not getting the broadest set of information to inform you know your ideas and your behaviors and your beliefs so you become you increase your bias nature that way. And that, that's dividing us. It's, you can so watch you, it happen. Are you also saying that as children you used to believe in the boogeyman 
and as adults, <laughs> right? And as adults, yeah. we believe in the in the boogeyman in that uh, on a small scale, we want to point to a boogeyman, be it Russia or something else. But as you're saying, no, it, uh, anything could be the boogeyman, but it's not addressing what you're just talking about, how you're not getting the big picture. Because uh, right. we're about to go into an election uh, season, and, and the algorithm, at least on social media now, to keep me on that platform is only going to give me what I like. So I'm not going to get yep. an opposing opinion. And then I'm surprised, like, how did this happen? I thought everyone agreed, believed like I did. Right. Well, you know, it's like on Facebook, people go, well, I can't stand listening to my this particular friend who's not really a friend's attitude because I totally disagree with it. And so they, you know, unfriend them. Well, so now you're never hearing an opposing piece of information. So what, what have you just done to yourself? <laughs> You've totally narrowed your way to create beliefs going forward. And I think that goes into my AI thing because it's not – so much here in the States, but you do hear places like China and others that they're getting together with like these AI type robots and totally forgoing the human experience, which is, in my opinion, very scary. Yeah. I don't know if you have seen or read any of that going on in the software world. <clears throat> I have not really dug into that, no. So... One thing I want to talk about is uh, with your book, and you're talking about your decision-making processes, is there one size fits all, or what's the best way to approach something when I get a diagnosis or something happens that, like you mentioned, freaks you out and you're totally out of your comfort zone? What's the best yeah, right. way to attack that? Yeah, I think absolutely not. One size does not fit all. And <clears throat> that's kind of some of the problems um, with some of our medical diagnoses, you know, your your physician that you've grown to know, I mean, they're human, they have limits, they have limits of offerings that they can give you, and they might even get in the habit of things that they um, offer to their patients. So um, the important thing about going through this process, creating your own personal experiment, is it is unique to you. The process is the same for everybody, or can be the same for everybody. But the um, the way you travel it. Oh, are you still there? I think my my power just went out. Yep. Okay. Yep. Not here yet. <laughs> the way you travel the process is um, is is your own unique experience. You are going to make a series of decisions specific to your needs that that make the path and the experiment perfect for you. So, you know, the important first thing to do is look at your problem and be sure you're solving the problem you're dealing with, it, you know, the thing at hand. And know your preferences so that when you reach out to begin to trust other people's opinions and gather information for options going forward, you know your own preferences so that those things can align to it. If people are giving you options and they haven't asked you anything about your preferences or even mentioned it or care about it, it's just kind of like a red flag. It's like, I don't know if I should trust them. <laughs> also included in your preferences is, like, what, what's important to you when you think about it, what's really important to you is what makes you really happy, what gives you joy. And you do not want, you are not going to make it through this hard path of a hard decision and a, and a difficult transformation if there's not stuff that's important to you and stuff that you enjoy to motivate you to keep the energy, to keep going through to the end. 
So, so this very first stage of understanding your problem, understanding your preferences is super important. <clears throat> when you go through and you get information, so now you, you kind of know what you're going for. When you get information, now you can, you can rely on that um, as a nice center of truth for you to, to evaluate some of the information. So you're going to get information that doesn't match with it, doesn't align with it. You're going to get information that aligns with it really nicely. So one thing you can do is like journal, why am I choosing to go with or not go with this particular option? You can you know, start training yourself like you're your own AI. <laughs> you start training yourself, why did I go with or not go with this option? And you can use that as information going forward. Once you've picked your options that you want to do and the people you're going to trust to help you, then it's time to make your plan and be sure and, and, and make um, a place where you measure your milestones. So you can see if you're on track. But if you're not on track, and this is a beauty, like people are worried, what, uh, I'm so worried I'm going to make this wrong decision. It's like, well, most time it's kind of okay if you make a little wrong decision here and there because you can, you can course correct on the way, but you have to be sure you know what the course is. So know what the course is set your milestones and measure it along the way, and then allow yourself to change your mind. <laughs> change your mind and course correct. That's okay. Um, and then finally, as you're going through all these steps, like this series of decisions, um, think about <clears throat> very carefully what this looks like when you get what you want. Like think about it before you get it. You're thinking about this thing you want like you already have it. So one of the um, exercises in executing your plan I highly recommend is thinking about how you're going to thank people or thank the situation or thank the conditions in the end when it's the way you want it. Because there's this, this fantastic uh, feeling that it brings to you when, when you, it's a visualization that uh, you already have what you want. And I think this is important in wellness topics because uh, every time you are grateful for it, even before you have it, you get that feeling like you already have it, and it takes you closer to that place. So you start believing in it more, and you start um, recognizing what it looks like more. And then you know what it feels like to own it. So you can start visualizing, now that I have this change that I've always wanted, how do I do the care and feeding? Like, how do I take care of this? What does it mean when I have this this change at the end, like, do I, do I, keep have, do I need to keep doing something? <laughs> and the answer is yes. Now that you're in this new place, you're going to own this place where you're at and, and, and what the privilege and feel the privilege that it is to have that and share it with others. It's a great opportunity to also pay it forward. So you've been through a tough thing. You've probably been, you know, kind of a taker right, from, the, from various people and things. And then when you are at the end and you're owning the results, you, you have an opportunity to pay it forward to other people. And there's, that just, you know, puts you on top of the world. It's a benefit to everyone. It's long the beginning, beginning with the end at mind. Yeah. I want to ask, uh, we're getting at the top of the hour here. I want to ask, what is that cool-looking tattoo you have on your left arm? <laughs> it is it is actually a um depiction of my garden. Oh. So um my daughter, uh Lynn Marie, she's a tattoo artist. 
And I told her I wanted um, something that looked like my garden. So I gave her just this, these design specifications. are like, I want the color palette of your chest piece because she has this beautiful chest piece. And I want it to be something I'm familiar with, my, like my birds and, and my plants. And, you know, I want my garden on my arm and a source of light so it, it can always guide me. And so that's what, that's what she is. So it's like a little garden lantern with, with birds and flowers and stuff. I love it. Cool. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. I'm looking at it. I can't quite see all the detail of it, but I just had to ask. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because in the summer in Portland, <laughs> I get actually I give a lot of cards out for my daughter's shop because, you know, people see it and it's cool. And, and um, I started getting, like, strange people wanting answers about it when I really don't want to talk to people about my tattoo. And it was one of those awkward social moments. I didn't know what to do. And, like, I, so I asked my daughter, so what do I do when I don't want to talk about my tattoos to these random strangers, you know, that are maybe a little creepy? And she's like, well, just tell them there's no story to it because everyone just wants to hear your story. So if there's no story behind it, they won't care anymore. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. That's quite the shutdown. So you got the story. <laughs> you got because he's got the, the homie. He got the story. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Way to go, David. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you begin with the end in mind, you have the book. Uh, are there speaking engagements, national tours? Uh, where do you foresee it, or the next process for Terry? Yeah, sure. So what I'm looking forward to next is um, my next book. And what I do in that, so the, the HPV Healing Experiment is a pretty niche book. Um, is I developed it mostly for personal purposes, kind of a coming out book, and it's also to help provide a story about a woman my age dealing with HPV for other people who um, need to not feel alone and need a way to think of a process to, to deal with these hard situations. And that has been lovely. What, I, what I'm going towards now is I'm taking that, that particular de- decision-making process and I'm kind of really breaking it down and digging into it and, and how to apply it to um, many decisions, either organizational decisions or individual decisions. And um, it's going to actually be called the decision doula. I've been like agonizing over a potential <laughs> over a potential title for it. It's been the decision doctors, and I think I'm going to go with the decision doula, uh, like the title of of this um, uh, program we're doing today. And uh, um, I'm going to be making an online workshop. So there'll be a series of courses that will be available to go with it, so that people can um, learn about a decision making process that incorporates both um, how to use analysis and data, and then also how to bring in that information from inside yourself and your intuition so that you can put um, personal acceptance, trust, and uh, gratitude into your decision-making. To uh, It's really a powerful way to bring about change. Sounds really exciting. And to back up with the hypothesis uh, HPV healing experiment, where could people find that book and how could they get in touch with you when they want to know more information? Sure. So I have a website. It's going to be morphing soon with the new book ideas, but it's at terrynovak.com. 
That's T-E-R-R-I-E. My mom did all those letters to me. Terry Novak, N-O-V-A-K.com. And um, there's like little links in there that go, but the book is currently at Amazon.com. You just go straight there. Um, it's also, there's an ebook format because it has a whole lot of references in it. So um, I kind of recommend the ebook format. It's anywhere you can, you like to get ebooks. And um, I also highly support um, indie bookstores. So if you would like to support Pals.com, it's available there too. Um, yeah. Well, you have just been attuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. Terry, it was a pleasure. Uh, we'd love to continue to follow up with you as your processes morph. Great. I look forward to that. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Terry. Bye-bye. Bye.